Welcome to Inaudible. I'm your host, Jeremy Wyland. On this podcast, we discuss the weird, beautiful channeled messages found in the long tradition of contact with the Confederation of Planets in service to the one infinite creator. These messages articulate a philosophy of spiritual evolution, popularly known as the Law of One. Many of these messages are available to listen to on our sister podcast, Living Love and Light, available on all platforms. We seek to provide analysis and commentary of this philosophy described in these messages, identifying the common themes and grappling with the application of this information to our human lives. However, we are not counselors, gurus, or experts of any kind, so please evaluate our words in light of our shortcomings and use your own best judgment. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Inaudible. Uh, I am uh, kicking this off solo because I did an interview with Dr. Stephen Tymon, a fellow founding member of the Other Selves Working Group, uh, earlier this week. Uh, and so we didn't do our regular introduction, so I just wanted to throw something in there. In this episode, we're going to be talking about a long-running philosophical concept called the problem of evil um, that has been considered ever since the time of Plato. Um, and we're talking about how that relates to polarity in the law of one philosophy, how uh, nuanced an issue evil and service to self actually is, and um, some of the consequences and uh, implications uh, of that uh, for how we do our service and how we think about the loyal opposition. So uh, with no further ado, uh, let's get into that. All right. So we have uh, Stephen Timon here uh, to talk to us about uh, the law of one and the problem of evil. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Jeremy. Great. Um, so I think a good place to start, uh, especially for those of us who are not familiar with philosophy, is what is this problem of evil in philosophy? What are its implications? And uh, how should we think about it in, in like the history of thought here as we you know, approach fourth density, perhaps? Well, if you take uh, the problem of evil in its traditional forms, uh, it has most bedeviled those philosophies that have a theological basis to them. Uh, now, that's not universally true, because going back all the way to Plato, who would have preceded theology as we know it, that is, the theologies based on the book, uh, which would be Christian, Jewish, and Islamic versions, uh, Plato could not understand how one could deliberately choose evil. And so the only solution Plato could come up with was the notion that somebody who did choose evil was in fact choosing what they thought was good. Uh, so it was a mistake in effect, on their part. Uh, they were choosing what was perhaps approximate good or a lesser good, thinking that was higher than the true good or the higher good. And so, uh, for example, if you uh, are aware of dietary uh, requirements uh, and nevertheless choose to violate those, 
there has to be some kind of uh, motive for doing so, and it's based on the fact that you have a sweet tooth or something of that nature, uh, and you momentarily give in to a lesser evil, I mean, I'm sorry, a, le a lesser good, uh, and set that over and above the greater good. Uh, now, if you're, for example, if you're angry at somebody and you lash out at them, you're yielding to a lesser impulse, whereas when cooler heads would have prevailed, uh, you would have known better than to do that. Uh, so Plato's view concerning the nature of evil came to be called the privative notion of evil. Uh, and when you project that onto uh, a view of uh, how the universe works, uh, it's thought that uh, the best way to think of evil is good turned down to the lowest possible volume, if you will. Uh, and as we gain more experience, as we become smarter, we learn to choose the greater good over the lesser good. So it's simply a, uh, an issue of um, maturation, if you will, or getting more and more intelligent. So intelligence then uh, was really from a very early date in the Western uh, tradition uh, allied with the notion of good, which means that value, th there was a univocal concept of value, the, the good lying at the highest and the, and the lesser good lying at the lowest. And that as we become more advanced, as we become smarter, as we become more mature, we move up that scale. What wouldn't register for somebody like Plato is that somebody could say, as uh, within the Christian tradition, for example, you sometimes hear mentioned, evil be thou my good. So uh, what, what cannot be understood within that frame of reference is how one could deliberately choose evil. That would change the whole picture. If, if that were possible. Now that gets carried over into the theological framework once you introduce the notion of God uh, in, in a little bit different way, but that same motif is preserved. For example, if you have a conception of God, which has traditionally been called the God of perfection, God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all good, how could such a God make a creation in which evil is possible? Uh, and once again, absolute evil would be unthinkable in that context. And you have to introduce a notion whereby you have selves, creatures, that would be us, uh, that are on a learning curve and making choices, thinking of these choices as being good, only to learn later that in reality they were lesser goods. So that fits in with the Platonic response, uh, but it, uh, that response is made more uh, uh, critical when the notion of the perfect God is at stake now, because the perfect God 
cannot have created a creation in which creatures would have a fundamental choice of evil based on the structure of creation itself. So that that became then uh, the the, uh, motive for speaking in monotheisms of evil as a mere privation. Now the interesting thing about these uh, monotheisms is that what I've just outlined is the metaphysical or the ontological uh, dimension of those monotheisms, which is typically called theology. But alongside that, in all three, you have kind of mythopoetic conceptions of evil, which often involve things like the devil whispering in your ear, uh, so that you have now uh, the notion of an angel, a fallen angel, or an exalted being of some sort that is able to choose evil not on the basis of being less intelligent, but upon some other basis altogether. Now, the basis that emerged as an explanation for that sort of thing suggested that there was a dimension other than intelligence involved in the process of human choice. And that dimension would be will. So what one can be within that framework, one could be perfectly intelligent. Uh, Satan has never been accused of being anything but intelligent. Uh, We can be perfectly intelligent and yet have a will directed towards the dark side rather than the light side. And uh, it is uh, sometimes expressed by saying that Satan would rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. Uh, so that you could see that as a as a kind of halting lisping after the more precise formulation that Ra gives when Ra describes the choice that we here in third density face between service to self and service to other. So that the uh, that path, which is traditionally we call the path of evil, would be that path in which the self is not prepared to sacrifice its own sense of self-interest for the sake of serving others, but rather clings devotedly to that self-interest as the highest value. So within that framework, it seems that, at least from the standpoint of third density experience, such as we enjoy now, the uh, choice involves a real split in value. One can actually function in a spiritual way while making the choice of service to self. So that that means that it becomes a viable choice. Uh, It becomes a choice grounded in the way things actually are. 
And indeed, it turns out, according to what we have from the Confederation, that there are those individuated souls who have made it through third density and been harvested to fourth and to fifth and to sixth densities uh, over the course of long eons while remaining on the path of service to self. So that suggests that the whole structure of the densities, at least, are arranged such that such a choice is viable and allows for development and growth along a trajectory, along a path, for a great many eons. So, uh, somehow you have to think reality, then, as being conducive to that possibility. And if we, ought, if we take the opposite possibility as real as well, as grounded in the nature of reality as well, then it would seem like you have two fundamental options which any description of the nature of reality as we experience it would have to accommodate it. Now, once again, there were earlier attempts to do just that in, for example, Manichaeanism. Uh, If you posit an eternally good God and an eternally evil God as eternally in opposition to each other, uh, that at least helps to explain the possibility of these choices persisting for a great length of time. Now, in point of fact, however, uh, Ra is actually a monist. And so Ra rejects that point of view. And as part and parcel of that rejection, Ra also suggests that to the best of their knowledge, no uh, entity has been able to make it past the middle part of sixth density on the negative path without releasing the potential involved in what Law has denominated service to self. So that, that means that to some extent you'd have to say that Law agrees with the Platonic tradition and the the traditions of the book, in which they say that uh, evil itself is not grounded in any nature of what is. But that gives gives rise to another question. Um, That is, how can there be within the creation a significant function ordered to that which is not. And if you think of the creation as something which is cut and dried, something which comes from the creator uh, full-blown and merely is a backdrop for human aspiration or development, uh, that's not going to work. So, the only way that you can conceive 
the two things together is to say that creation itself is protein, and that is in fact a protein or something which is in the process of development, which is in fact what uh, Ra will say. The creation is a protein entity, and that corresponds to uh, certain attempts made by philosophers which call themselves process philosophers uh, to think through the problem of evil uh, as uh, having some kind of a ground, even if this ground is at the same time an abyss. That's, a, that's how, how uh, Schelling put the matter when he tried to think this through. He called it the not, not the ground, but the upground, the abyss. I'm particularly struck by uh, the historical uh, process that you've related here, because it's, if I understood you correctly, Steve, it seems like back in Plato's time, was there not was there not a notion of evil from in his philosophy? It was simply the absence of good. Like, is this what you mean by the development over time from Plato's time? of there being some kind of ground to the negative or service-to-self evil concept. Well, uh, once again, we come back to this uh, distressing split between uh, the uh, emotive, mythological uh, dimensions of a culture and the rational dimensions of a culture and at the time that Plato came along, uh, Greek philosophy was was uh, developing along a trajectory of rationality. It was really the the uh, sort of defining upsurge of the rational moment in the Western tradition. That, that's in fact why uh, the Western tradition is uh, typically traced to Greece. Precisely because there was this moment in which you know, uh, the, the pre-Socratic philosophers, such as uh, Heraclitus and Thales uh, uh, and others, uh, and then Socrates and then Plato and then Aristotle, uh, that was a big upsurge in this moment of, of rational flowering. Uh, uh, we could have traced our our heritage back to Egypt, for example. Right. And in Egypt, uh, there were what we would call magicians at work. The priestcraft was uh, known for its kind of uh, theurgic work uh, in which some were dark magicians, and some were considered to be uh, magicians of the light. And, and, it, and, of course, the dividing line between those two often became blurred. Uh, but they were working with powers which they often understood to be forbidden. Uh, and so uh, the Greeks were definitely aware of the Egyptians. And there's a sense in which uh, one has to assume that this upsurge uh, into 
the rational moment uh, that the Greeks were invested in were in some measure uh, a, a deliberate effort to move away from the, that kind of uh, cultural matrix in, into um, the sunshine, so to speak. Uh, uh, and the sunshine was defined as that which could be rationally shared among all human beings and didn't require delving into these darker forces uh, that could now be seen to be not entirely wholesome. That's really interesting. Are you, are you, if I don't mean to be reductive, but are you suggesting that a lot of what Greek philosophy actually entails is a kind of rationalization of Egyptian practices? Well, it's a moving into rationality, which is not okay. Not the same as a rationalization. Oh, I I know. Yeah. I, okay. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It, it's 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 making it more rational and less it's, rationality as opposed to occultism, right? Yes. Okay, that's uh, what I meant. There were there were uh, occult practitioners even in in Greece, as you know. I mean, there were those, for example, who uh, consulted the Delphic Oracle, and, right, and so on and so forth. And so uh, those things were definitely known. Uh, and in fact, when Nietzsche came along, you know, uh, many centuries later, uh, one of the things which Nietzsche tried to do was to undo the what had then become the standard interpretation of Greek culture as uh, this very reason-based uh, efflorescence and to suggest that there was a dark side mm -hmm. uh, to Greek culture uh, and that that was discoverable within Greek tragedy, for example. Uh, so, uh, and, That's and interesting. It, it, it entailed this kind of autochthonous sense and, and so the the movement to the rational was in in, in that reading uh, a, a movement a de deliberately a movement away from these darker dimensions so it was a kind of uh, overlay of the rational upon these darker forces which Nietzsche was trying to bring out at that point yeah this complexifies my sort of very simplistic uh, uh, way of approaching how the whole idea of uh, a, a chosen negativity, what we call service to self, uh, becomes thinkable uh, in our culture, because a lot of the way that I looked at it was in the Greeks were all about moderation, right? The idea was not to be all this way or all that way, but to, 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 to have a cue for the middle. And, that, and then that—that's what arose through Greek rationality. That's right. Yeah. It, well, but, that, but it's interesting to contemplate the idea that even in that moderation, it casts a shadow itself. Like that, there's this polarity that continually arises to the point where you get in Christianity. Suddenly, moderation is not what you want. <laughs> what you want is to always be good and to never be evil. Right, you always hew to, to to one God, and anything not doing that is wrong. It se it seemed to me like there was a a change that was made when Christianity came onto the scene, and maybe I'm I'm misreading it. Well, I I think you're right. I I think uh, maybe I would add one more consideration to that equation, 
uh, and that would be repression. Mm. Uh, the, 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 uh, it, it's not that moderation was a balancing between good and evil, but uh, it was a, uh, 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 a, a moderated approach to appetite. Yeah. Not too much, not too little, right? And so uh, uh, it was it was appetite which was the issue, or you could say desire, which uh, was what was in need of moderation. And it was a mark of maturity that you were able to moderate your appetites. Right. But now what uh, what happened when you introduced this notion of the all-embracing God. And not only that, but, but here's an interesting point. An all-embracing God that issues commandments. Now that's key. Mm-hmm. That issues commandments. Uh, that the situation begins to change. Because it's no longer a question of what would really be best for myself in the long run? Uh, how uh, how would I best address myself to my own appetites in the long run? Do I do that? Is it best for me to swing wildly from pillar to post, or do I do better to uh, cultivate a set of habits which are moderate and which uh, give me a more balanced life? Uh, taken as a whole, that's what the Greeks came up with. Uh, but now, if, if there are certain appetites which themselves are prohibited, uh, that, that invites repression. And, and take, for example, uh, the life of the monk who has taken a vow of chastity but nevertheless has these disturbing urges. Uh, and you, you must now come up with a way to address these urges. And there's no successful way to address those urges within the value framework that you've now adopted, given the prohibitions you're trying to live by, other than repressing them. So repression then becomes a... Uh, a serious portion of the psychic life of these avid Christians. And a funny thing happens on the way to repression. There's something more and more delicious about that which is repressed. And so uh, you're actually empowering that desire by blocking it and forcing it underground, so to speak. And now there comes to be this whole portion of the psyche that is a repository of repressed desire. And and that that exercises an allure that can be associated with the allure of evil itself. So now, so now, uh, 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 evil as as an act of uh, violation of law uh, becomes uh, 
more emphasized as an experience typical of the spiritual aspirant. The more pure you seek to get in your desires, the more uh, tendency there is to repress those desires that you don't approve of. And they, and there's a siren call from down below then, uh, as these desires take many different forms and call to you, call out for uh, expression that uh, is not allowed. And it's, it's interesting that when you read the Law of One, you see that the Ten Commandments that you find in the Old Testament, Law says, were not given by the positive entity originally called Yahweh, but by the negative entity mocking or pretending to be uh, the Yahweh. So uh, what sets up a structure of repression actually empowers the potential of evil in an oblique way. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, I hadn't even thought of repression, but I did have a note here that it seemed to me like that what happened with Christianity was like, it was as if the self is to be a moderate individual finding balance within. And in, in it seemed like in a lot of in Greek culture, it was in the marketplace, in the society, that whatever might be called good or evil was worked out with Christianity. Everything gets brought within. And now it's this contest within the self about, do I allow this? Do I allow that? I have to keep myself rigid and disciplined. And repression, like, that's a way better way of saying it. And, and, and I would point out further that you find similar things throughout the Judaic tradition and the Islamic tradition, all these religions of the book. Yeah. which all base themselves on the Old Testament in some way or another. Yeah. So and it's so that this... Becomes... Go ahead. Uh, I, I'm just trying to figure out where to go next with this. So, um, so we have this idea that a possibility begins to emerge that what we would call evil, service to self, negativity, can be consciously willed and chosen. And it brings up this problem of what the ground of that experience is, what the ground of those values are. Am I, am I connecting back up with where we left off? I think so. And okay. uh, uh, the, uh, if we allow ourselves to project this problem forward and ask what evil looks like writ large, uh, on a macroscopic scale, uh, it's clearly uh, associated with authoritarian, dominant structures of government. Now, such structures of government uh, involve uh, an elite uh, that have managed to risen to power such that they have dominion over others. And the self then undergoes this inflation. The sense of self undergoes this fantastic inflation so that it involves me not just having control 
over myself, but over vast numbers of others, and I can direct their activities in ways that uh, appeal to me. Now, as Ra points out, the individuals that are within this configuration can very often regard themselves as good, Mm -hmm. because what they think they're doing is putting the universe in order, or putting their society in order, or putting the uh, uh, immediate domain in which they live in order. Sometimes it's only the family. Uh, but it, it, it represents uh, a, an urge to have control, an urge to have my will become manifest as an ordering factor in the world in which I live. It seems to me that that gets perilously close to this idea of evil as like um, a choice that's made out of a lack of intelligence, right? Because you're kind of mis you're misanalyzing what's going on in your decision making. But I think what you're talking about, and I, I was really fascinated by this this idea of an evolution of evil coming out of um, repressed desires that are then that, that then become to be valued in spite of the self, right? Like, well, and then there's a, like a connection true, between if, that. If you look at authoritarian governments, they are repressive. So in other words, uh, if you are lower down on the pecking order in an authoritarian system, there's a great deal of your own propensities for self-expression that you have to repress. Right. For purposes of, you know, making your way up that pecking order. And you can see that at work in American politics today. You can see that work at work uh, all over uh, all over the world and in those uh, countries especially that have become authoritarian. Yeah. So, in other words, you, you the way you curry favor within the power elite is by playing according to their rules even if those rules are not something you would have promulgated. So you play according to those rules up until the point where you have enough power so that it's you that is dictating the rules. Yeah, and then and the question that, is, the, way. the question is what's, what comes after that, right? What happens after you get what you want? Um, and like, well, it, it, it seems that it's pretty insatiable. Yeah. Exactly. Then you if, find something else. If Putin gets Ukraine, it's got. He's, you know, there, there's no stopping point. He's going to have to keep going, because there's nothing else to do. There, there's no further growth. Yeah. Uh, possible on that trajectory, and so you have to just keep expanding and expanding and expanding. And at some point, and and this is presumably uh, well beyond third density. At some point, uh, as, as Ra puts it, uh, an entity evolving along the path of service to self loses all interest in other selves altogether. Because it's the service to self becomes so compacted within itself that uh, it it no longer even can see its own advantage being expressed 
in any domain of manifestation. And so Which is, that, that, that has to happen just prior, I would think, just prior to the great moment of realization that there's no way forward Yeah, on that path. Which must be particularly painful, because if we hold to this theory that um, a lot of these negative habits of conceiving of the self and of the other um, arise from repression, then what you have as you sort of retreat within, I would think, Steve, is a very abused and painful inside, right? Like your your self-conception has almost been sort of um, abused for the purpose of, of, of pursuing power without. It's been uh, disciplined and rigidified, uh, turned against itself, like what those of Ra say about uh, – I believe Himmler, what is the first separation? Self from self. That has to there has to be a pain that that arises from that that would be difficult to reconcile with. When I saw the the whole what you were saying about Putin constantly expanding, there was a sense in which that made a lot of sense on an intuitive level, because if you've made your life about the acquisition and deployment of power, then you're never you're always going to want to look outwards. Constantly yeah. projecting outwards uh to be more of a self than you are. You never want to turn in for any reason other than to, well, to, to use the metaphor to, uh, to knock, to, to, to knock the people at home around, right. To get the Metropole in line so that you can go out into the frontier. Right. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, I, I think that, uh, self-examination just becomes something that has no interest to whatsoever. Uh, so I, I don't know if I, I think what happens is that at some point the capacity for uh, uh, self-control it abandons the notion of repressing desire and flips that. Uh, dynamic uh, on its head so that yeah. you're, what, what you're attempting to do is to repress the desire of others. So the uh, service to self becomes necessarily other-oriented because the power that you seek to exert has to be over other. Right. And at that point, you don't really have the, di- the, t- the dynamic that we typically recognize as repression at all, it's all outer-directed. So, for example, when I look uh, at Donald Trump, I don't see any effort to repress at all. In fact, he's kind of irrepressible. Uh, th- there's, there's nothing left of that uh, internalized structure. It's all been externalized. And, and so there's uh, the, the I don't even think he's capable of repressing himself, uh, which is precisely what makes him so effective, because you know that, uh, he's not inhibited in expressing things that most of the rest of us would be very reluctant to say. Yeah. That uninhibited quality gives him a great deal of power, 
but it's power that needs to be reflected back to itself constantly. Right. So it's, it, it's got this insatiable hunger. It has to see the effect it's having on the world on a regular basis to, reaff- to reaffirm its own existence and its own consequentiality. Um, so that may well be, as you say, grounded in some kind of primordial pain. Uh, but uh, it's a pain that uh, the self refuses to feel. It maybe just projects out, like it. Yeah, it's it all projection it. all the time. Yeah, yeah, it just weaponizes it. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. There isn't a lot of like in in in, in the conversations that I have seen and participated in uh, around the law of one. There really isn't a lot of detailed exploration of the negative psychology or like what what their whole uh reward model is right like what what kind of drives them forward um and and it's not because there's a lack of um uh curiosity about this in fact if you look at the forums where people post about you know law of one discussions and stuff like that there's it's 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 almost uh, uh a cliche now that there will be the perennial like well what about the sts people i'm an sts person i'm looking for you know service of self information don't i belong here and like the the the, the, the paralyzing effect that that has on everybody because they don't know what they would even make of that right and let alone how to relate to it like i mean i think it's pretty easy to just say hey you know we respect your polarity, but we're trying to concentrate our polarity over here. But just yeah. the inability to to for first of all, I don't think anybody who's advertising themselves as service to self is usually service to self. That's totally not that kind of openness is not usually uh good for manipulating people, right? That's right. Yeah. Uh, that, that's the first thing to notice. I, I mean it's it's a bit of a confession against interest. Right. Uh but uh what it suggests is that you know they're pretty new to the game, yeah, and uh, they do notice that there uh, are uh, selfish uh, impulses within their own psyche. Well, I guess welcome to the human race. I mean, right. that's, that's going to be uh, uh, true of everyone, and you know it, it's uh, that's why the percentage it takes of service to others versus service to self uh, on the positive path is much lower than what it is on the negative path. That is to say, Ross says that it takes 50% service to others to get over the hump to harvest ability. Uh, Whereas if you're on the negative path, uh, it takes 95% service to sell, and that there's essentially an equivalence between those two numbers. Uh, so, uh, one is going to find impulses to selfishness. Yeah. Uh, even if one is very high on the uh, scale of service to others. And, and, and one always has to be fastidious because it's very easy to deceive oneself to suggest that one is actually acting 
uh, for the benefit of another, whereas in some secret sense that turns out to be at least in a strong proportion uh, service to oneself. Yeah, the, the... For, example, uh, for, for example, if, if I have a child mm-hmm. and I want that child to do well, and I can go to great lengths, I can devote myself to creating the circumstances uh, which will permit that child to do well. But uh, perhaps hidden from me, there is the dimension of the fact that uh, I want to be seen as a person whose child does well. So is it really the child that I am acting for the benefit of? Or is it, uh, or is the child I'm acting for the benefit of a projection of myself, and it's really myself that I'm addressing? So that tricky questions like that constantly come up on the service to others have. Yeah, and 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 it seems like a lot of what makes service to self decisions have that character because it is very mixed, right? It can look from multiple different perspectives. It can look positive or negative sometimes a given human decision um a given interested action uh but i would say like in the wash generally speaking it seems like negative folks tend to really be attached to outcomes and that's a huge part of how they direct um their thinking whereas positive folks tend to be more about principles intentions uh do you do you agree with that? Up to a point. Okay. Uh, I think that uh, when uh, negative entities uh, begin to approach harvestability, uh, they become more aware of the centrality of intentions there as well. Mm. Uh, uh, that could lead us into a, a, another interesting point about the conception of evil that we often have. We, we, we often associate evil with these horrible deeds. So the serial killer, the rapist, you know, uh, uh, these are, these are uh, classic examples that give rise to the notion of unadulterated evil. How could somebody do that? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, when you step back from behaviors such as killing other individuals just but for the sake of seeing them die or for the sake of you know experiencing that power you have over them for that fleeting moment um, it it doesn't really go to uh, a more penetrating or more long-term benefit to that particular self. Uh, so it, ha- it becomes a repetitive behavior, and you're stuck in that repetitive behavior, and you develop an appetite for it, perhaps, and you're and, and you get stuck there. But that doesn't mean you're anywhere near home stability. And so uh, when you when you really begin to contemplate what a more harvestable uh, 
individual on the negative path would be, uh, very likely they would be able to blend almost seamlessly with a, a broader society in which there are a great many service to others, individuals. And so it, you, you wouldn't single them out. And you know, if you look at our, our political system, you can find all kinds of people that are really uh, strongly self-interested and are, are able to come up with you know, rhetorical tropes that uh, suggest to others that they're really trying to act in their best interest, in the public interest. Uh, and, you know, uh, and you have to look rather closely to see that, okay, they're really, they're really self-interested. Uh, now, such individuals as that might well have a history that at some point required them to be able to kill off those soft feelings of compassion for others. And so they, who knows, they may have had past incarnations in which they learned to do just that. Maybe they were murderers. You know, maybe they uh, uh, were uh, ruthless in, in one fashion or another. Uh, and so the long and the short of that seems to me that, that to be that uh, uh, there is an intensification of intention that necessarily follows either path, either the either service to others or service to self, and that uh, the factor of intelligence does come into play. I, I, I can hardly imagine a thoroughly unintelligent service to self person being anywhere near harvestable, uh, because they have to be astute enough to know where their self-interest lies. And since their self-interest is so invested in, cons in achieving consequences which mm -hmm. augment their effectiveness in a manifest domain in the world, uh, they have to know how to manipulate other people and uh, achieve positions for that power to be realizable. And, and that's just not something less intelligent people can pull off. Now, on, on the other side, uh, one, one knows perhaps examples of uh, people who maybe don't strike one as being astonishing, astonishingly intelligent, but who are nevertheless very giving. And, and, and in dealing with that sort of situation, one wants to uh, introduce such factors as emotional intelligence, uh, such that uh, it can uh, play into the compassion which one you know, feels permeating one's whole, whole being. Uh, there also can be extremely intelligent people that are very compassionate. But uh, the, the kind of shrewdness that is characteristic of the service to self path can often be missing there.
Yeah, I think I think there actually is a kind of intelligence that's very um oh, David Graeber talks about it. It's uh I forget the word for it, but it's like being really good at putting yourself in somebody else's shoes is not necessarily something that dumb people can do, right? Like to be able to really see from somebody else's eyes and put yourself in their shoes and take that we called it imaginative labor because he said it's a form of labor that servants have to do for their masters to anticipate their demands right and so you're constantly putting yourself in somebody else's shoes but if you see that as a kind of service to others kind of thing if you're putting yourself in somebody else's shoes that takes a lot of like ingenuity and imagination to it, contemplate it how point, that might be I would be. point out that that, that particular uh, motif could cut both ways uh, because it, it, you you put that in a master slave context, and uh, uh, indeed, if you're if you're uh, uh, progressing upon a negative path, one of the things that you're going to have to do is kowtow to those in authority, and one of the ways you go about doing that is trying to figure out what it is they want. That's a good and point. Find a way to appeal to that. But I think there's something in what you're saying, because uh, that's not really putting yourself in their shoes, uh, because uh, there's a certain sense in which, at this emotional level, which the compassionate uh, occupy, there's nobody in those shoes on the negative path. Right. They're just objects so, to be moved around on the board. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you're, it's the, more like the, it's more like trying to predict that animal's behavior. It's like, right. oh, what 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 is it going to do? Sorry. Uh, speaking of which, I have to let the dog in. I'll be right. Oh, go for it. Yep. Okay. Sorry about that. No problem. <laughs> I just uh, been trying to think about where we left off. Uh, we were talking about you were you were you were talking about how emotion that emotional intelligence I was talking about can cut both yeah. ways. Um, and 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 the fact that within people who are compassionate, um, there uh, that plays out differently. So, in other words, when one's able to put oneself in somebody else's shoes, uh, uh, you you are allowing their structure of feeling to kind of permeate your own. There's a certain sense in which uh, one can never do that completely. And so one's always having to make a surmise, uh, an analogy based on one's own experience. How would I feel if I were in that position? Uh, but one gets, one gets feedback, and mm -hmm. it's by, by developing a, a capacity to respond to that feedback that one develops an effective compassion-based means of interacting with another individual. And the single requirement for that is humility, because one's constantly having to realize that yeah. uh, uh, other people don't necessarily function in exactly the same way that I do. And so, uh, if I am genuinely to serve this other individual, uh, I have to uh, 
keep the portals of learning constantly open and realize that any conclusions I might be drawing or any efforts I might be making could well be uh, misconceived. Yeah. So, uh, uh, so there's that. And then additionally, there, there's the factor that uh, sometimes what people actually want is not what they really need. Mm-hmm. And uh, it maybe uh, and it sometimes happens that one has uh, a better informed sense of what they might actually be calling for than they do at a particular time. And, you know, for example, this is quite frequently the case when dealing with children. Yeah, uh, but it's also the case in dealing with one's peers sometimes. Uh, and and so then uh, we don't have. If it's if it's a peer-based relationship, we don't have the right to unilaterally conclude what would be good for them. Uh, but on the on the other hand, uh, it's not just a question of always pleasing them. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the difficult work that happens not just in green ray but also in blue ray comes into play because one has to be honest with them. Yeah. And that, that honest, that honest feedback, can often throw them off their game, uh, and they can even turn on you. This is this happens really quite frequently. Uh, people will turn on you when you give them honest feedback, and sometimes the better part of humility is simply allowing that to happen, and uh, and seeing what comes of it. It it, it might be well. So, what is that? Uh, street sweeper or something like that. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess we'll have to exercise some humility and patience here. <laughs> okay. Uh, it can often be the case that what people uh, really need from you uh, is something uh, so that's so intensive as catalyst that they will never come back to you again. And you have to accept that as a possibility. Yeah. There's also the possibility of just choosing not to give them what they want. Like, that's also a form of service to withhold it. Yeah. Um, but I, the, the, the way that I usually think about it that helps me understand it in a, in a really polarized way is that... Uh, the negative entity is trying to control other people. Their, their decisions are grounded in making other, other selves in the world safe for themselves, right? Whereas positive folks, whatever they're doing, whether it's withholding service, giving service, um, doing it in a way where maybe they won't be talk to them again, you know, all those possibilities that you related and more, they're trying to free that other self to be their best self. Now that can yes. that can be misinterpreted. The actions you take to do that may be mistaken. It turns out, but yes. if that goal is for them to be the the most themselves, the most the creator. Then that is a positive intention, and it's why hewing to the intention specifically, rather than you know making it about whether or not you actually got the outcome you want, 
that, that's right. where I was going with the negative being outcome oriented because it's all about this externalized self that they're manipulating into place. Whereas for the positive person, it seems like it's about stepping out of the way of this greater self coming into being through other selves, right? That's right. Uh, what complicates that issue, of course, uh, is that uh, there are often uh, mutual projects which service to others, individuals are engaged in. Mm-hmm. And, and in those cases, you can't simply uh, pull back from altogether from the outcome because it's an outcome-based enterprise that you're involved with on a cooperative basis. Uh, so, uh, it, it's a very tricky balance, and it gets very complex. In, in, right, because in, uh, you don't want to value the outcome more than the person, right? You like, don't want, uh, but, but, but let's say for the sake of argument that the outcome involves many people. And uh, on a particular occasion, you're only dealing with one or two or three, whatever. Uh, and uh, it may be that the particular individuals that you're approximately relating to uh, have certain sets of requirements, uh, whereas the many others that you're also trying to serve uh, have requirements that, to the best of your ability to, to see, uh, are not consonant with those which these the, the uh, individuals that you're approximately dealing with have going. And so it becomes very complicated. Uh, sometimes there's no, uh, to my experience, uh, there's no option but but to withdraw. Uh, for you can't, uh, you're just not in a position where you can give these people what they want uh, and at the same time uh, maintain the relationship that you feel you need to a broader community. And yeah. that happens not infrequently. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I'm picking up. Um, it, it's, and it's not just a matter of calculation. It's not like a utilitarian calculation. Like we can't the, think of it in those terms most of most of the time. Yeah, it, it, you can't put it in in, in numbers. Yeah, uh, but it, uh, and so a lot a lot of the time you're flying by the seat of your pants. It's got to be instinct. Yeah, it's uh, so you, you. I mean. Uh, if it's a question of serving a broader community versus serving, you know, a few few individuals, uh, when you just look at it that way, the answer uh, comes almost immediately. But what? But uh, what if serving this broader community uh, cannot be effectuated except through the offices of this smaller community that you somehow feel? Are distorted. Uh, how does that play out? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it, it, it's there's not an answer, an a priori answer. It's something that has to be explored experientially, and and can be very, very confusing. And, and it may be, like I think you said earlier, there is no necessarily correct outcome. The entire functional value of the experience is in the contemplation is in the, the, the inquiry into the self that is required in order to make the ethical choice, even that, if it's the that, wrong one. 
that's right. I mean, that, that's that's the way service to others plays out at the level of the self. Yeah. But also, service to others is intended as a service to others, which confounds the whole situation. Uh, because one never really well, has enough information to make a definitive conclusion about that. Well, well, Quo is in many, many places very clear that action is not the only way in which we serve. Oh, yes. Yeah. Right. So, so, so you're talking about it uh, uh, in the context of service acts from one node of the creator to another. Yes. Independent of the service of being that we all already offer just right. by existing. Yeah. I'm uh, reading through the archives again, and the being versus doing question just keeps coming up with uh, Carlos Cuo over and over and over again. So I have that very much in mind. And it just it's important, I think, even more broadly speaking, when it comes to these decisions that events a polarity, right? That's all that they're doing. The polarity is actually an intentional, like, deep-seated philosophical bias that one is building or not building, right? If you're in the sinkhole, then you're not making a lot of progress. But as you build it, 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 it's at the level of intention and kind of like a very sense of who you are that this polarity comes into reality. Would you agree with that? Yes. Uh, It's it's interesting that you mentioned Carla's cool because uh, there was something that came up primarily in the law contact, uh, that both uh, Carla and Don really, really struggled with, and that is when they were receiving this grief yeah. from the negative fifth density en- entity. And uh, they took it as a given that service to others, individuals, do not judge any. Uh, including those who are dedicated to service to self. And and there were several instances in which uh, Ra expressed sympathy for that point of view, but did not encourage the naivete of it. And uh, so so, uh, there comes a point at which when one discerns that one is dealing with a service-to-self energy, now that, that, and I'm putting it that way deliberately because uh, one can find service-to-self energies within people who are not on the whole service-to-self, but, but perhaps are service-to-others. Uh, but when one comes face-to-face with a service-to-self energy, uh, one must be very careful not simply to uh, attempt to appease it, but one must be prepared to say, no. One must prepare to say, this is where I must draw the line. Sorry. God bless you, but sorry. 
And that, that's a very hard choice to have to make because it can seem negative. Oh, and it, 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 it is judgmental, but where, where the judgment re- resides is the key. If you're simply judging the other person, you say, well, I think they're bad, you know, to hell with them. Oh, that's one thing. But if, if the judgment is, this is the limit of how far I can go. Mm-hmm. That's a judgment which is centered on how one will orient one's own being in relation to this situation. And not, not only is one entitled to do that, but one is responsible for doing that. And so one has to be able to act to preserve one's own integrity and one's own polarity in at all kinds of different levels, in the immediate interpersonal sense and in the sense in which one conceives of how one's service fits into a broader program of action. So this is the corollary to what we were just talking about, about how it's so hard to work with groups and make this calculation. Sometimes it's not a calculation you're in charge of affecting on the group, but it's a calculation you have to make within yourself to exit the group. uh, That can be necessary, uh, and and it can be necessary because one encounters a limitation within oneself. Mm -hmm. It can be necessary to become... Sure. One encounters a limitation within a, a, a group of people one is proximately working with, or it can be an assessment one has to make in relation to the larger picture, which is one's best estimate of the, the best way one has of serving a larger population. So it, it becomes intricate, it becomes very difficult. Yeah, this this idea of respecting these limitations uh, strikes me as a particularly an, inter- a particularly interesting aspect of positivity. You would see the negative path more as trying to overcome, route around, uh, disrespect any limitations that yeah. define the self. Whereas and this, this the positive- plays out. But that's right. This and this plays out in the higher densities as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's warfare, uh, fourth density entities uh, opposing each other, service to self on the one hand, service to other. And, and it, it's a, a net reduction in polarity for uh, service to others to have to take an oppositional attitude uh, and oppositional actions with regard to other entities within the creation. But if their ambition is to dominate you and you know very well you cannot continue to evolve on the trajectory of service to others, if you are so dominated, you have no choice. You are put in this situation where uh, the, the calculus is made in the fourth density and uh, to some extent fifth density that they have to engage in this uh, not productive uh, interrelation. Yeah, this seems to be one of the things about the experience of polarity that I find most difficult, which is the acceptance of a persistent dynamic tension. 
that is necessary to keep the poles, you know, concentrated at each end, right? It's exhausting. It it, it can really offend one's sense of justice. Yes. That uh, one one is doing one's level best to uh, move along the path of service to others. And then uh, you have all these wrenches thrown into the works mm-hmm. by those who are doing their level best to upend uh, that whole uh, effort. Uh, it just seems unfair. Yeah. Uh, but that's, I mean, basically, that's what third density looks like on this planet. Yeah, no, Hatan, actually, we had a Richmond session where Hatan addressed this directly because we had a seeker who was talking about how, how do I deal with the fact that it seems like negativity constantly intervenes in what I try to give to the world? And Hatan was like, don't you understand that, like, the very fact that they're <laughs> trying to undermine you shows you what you're doing is, like, positive? Like, yeah. you, they're, it, they, it it's their... They can show you that, but that doesn't solve your problem. It doesn't make it easier. That's true. It's not, it's, I think Hatan meant to comfort. I'm not sure if it was a comfort, but they said, but they said that, you know, your job is not to convince people to go service to others. Your job is to give them the choice for them to freely make. And you have to understand that the service self path is doing exactly the same thing. But at, at some point, you know, you do have to stand your ground. And uh, and it, it can come to blows. It, it, it does. Where where does one draw upon? See that 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 seems like such a tall order for a an entity that is trying to see the self in others at the extreme levels that we are talking about. Where does one draw upon strength for that opposition when it is necessary on the positive path? Uh, where? Yeah. Uh, How does one say no with love? I guess is what I'm saying, right? I mean, at, at some point, I, I think basically Carla had to face this. She, uh, uh, she uh, said, what, what would I be prepared to die for? And uh, there are there are some situations uh, in which uh, a uh, dominating force is uh, so close to being able to completely overrun you that that's the moment when you have to take your stand. Uh, it, you know, it's uh, what what tends to happen is that service to other others people. Uh, are not very good at stemming the tide mm-hmm. of aggression against them until a very late date when it becomes obvious that there's no choice but to be resolute. Uh, and then they are, but but then they find it but within they themselves are. to be resolute. Yeah, uh, and so so that can happen. Now, as one gains exp- experience and becomes less naive uh, in dealing. It, it, which those of all uh, have a great deal to learn about, by the way, uh, in dealing with a mixed environment like our third density, uh, I think that 
it's possible to learn certain techniques of uh, you know laying down uh, lines of division for others not to cross you know uh, uh, suggesting to them that uh, I am after all not a pushover so yeah. I'm not an easy mark uh, some people are better at exuding that energy than others uh, and and that I think that's simply a process of gaining experience living in a mixed environment. But uh, 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 it is useful to have that. Let, let me also, I, I agree with you that that is a, that is a capability that I need to work on. I think there's another aspect that a positive entity would do well to have practiced in order to stand up in this situation to to exhibit a a service to others resistance right that's what we're talking about we're talking about a lack of acceptance on the service of others path and i think it's reckoning with disappointment because a lot of times what keeps people holding on and seeing the good in others is Sometimes it's a genuine desire to see the good in others. Sometimes it's a convenient desire to see the good in others that one feels completely hoodwinked when reality finally sets in. And like our perceptions create the reality we see. So, you know, like it's all, it's all honestly gained. Uh, uh, but at the same time, like you're hanging on because you want to believe that, that that somebody or something is redeemable. You see something in it that isn't wrong. There is something that is redeemable in them. There is something that is good in them. The, the idea is that you want to see the good in everybody. You're looking for the love in the moment on a constant basis, ideally. And there's this acceptance that's hard to do once what you see hasn't obtained by that person's choice into reality or by that organization's choice or whatever you're dealing with. And that disappointment hurts so much, um, but you don't want to armor your heart to avoid it. You know what I mean? And, and, and it's a, a very common experience. It's almost inevitable that, that uh, we'll experience disappointment. Uh, other people continually disappoint us. and. When that happens, uh, there's always a process one has to go through. Uh, is the disappointment that I'm experiencing due largely to false expectations that I right. myself might have had, or uh, were those expectations uh, within appropriate parameters, and this other individual is just unable to uh, uh, make progress in an area that seems to me they ought to be able to make progress in. And I, I think the latter is is by no means a rare experience. Uh, and so it, it, it's, it can sometimes be, uh, it, it's always easy to solve other people's problems. Uh, it's not so easy to solve one's own. And so the uh, uh, the impediments towards making a leap that seems obvious uh, to one that another might be experiencing 
can can be invisible to all. I mean, why why is it you can't just take that step? Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, actually, uh, it's it's interesting. I think probably the the best psychologist of the problem of negativity or of evil, if you prefer, uh, was Kierkegaard, uh, and uh, he. He defines evil as a misrelation in the self. Now, he defines the self as a relation that relates itself to itself. Mm -hmm. So, evil then is a misrelation in a relation that relates itself to itself. And, in relating itself to itself, relates itself either transparently or opaquely to the power that constitutes it. That's what he thinks of as God. But uh, as uh, Kierkegaard examines the motivational dynamics of this misrelation of self to self, uh, he he, uh, comes deeper and deeper into what he calls despair, and uh, tries to understand why, when you can see that all you need to do is to release this potential, this self, this this potential that clings to its own incapacity to release itself to the power that constitutes it. Why it can't do that? And the deeper down it gets into this despair, the more impossible it is just to let go. Because that's what is required. All that's required is an acceptance of the despairing self. And the despairing self can know that and yet be no closer to being able to do that. Mm-hmm. All you need to do is to release your anger, your resentment, your hate. But you can't do it. And when you gaze at another person, there's no there's no reason why they can't do it. And so you can't understand why they don't just do it. Mm-hmm. But they can't. It's it's a psychological impossibility. It's sometimes called a mental block. And it's one of the most uh, uh, difficult things to deal with. It, it's impervious to rational explanation. But it's just not going to happen. If, if somebody has been traumatized and has a terrible fear of water, you're never going to teach them to swim. You know, that it... Uh, it's something that is not going to be resolved in this incarnation. Yeah. And that, that kind of stuff is, is to be accepted. Like that's, that's our struggle as positive beings is to understand that these limitations that we encounter within ourselves that cause us to say no, others encounter those too. And that causes them to say no. The only limitation to acceptance in my psyche, 
is self-created. Yeah. And it, yet, that's the biggest uh, impediment of all. The, 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 the intuition that I had when you were talking about this intractable uh, 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 clinging to that which is causing despair is that it's a sense of self that is like it like it's like it's like the thing that you can't accept that's built into who you think you are well that's a good point in other words it has to die yeah it's the ego has to uh undergo death that that seems to be sacrifice in order in order for that to happen and yet what, what do i have if i don't have everything that I think myself to be, which is what, what the ego likes to fashion itself in. At least on the service to others path, we have the comfort of knowing that we are giving ourselves all the tools right now in third density to continue that exploration of what that self is uh, for a long, long time. <laughs> a long, long time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this might, this might be a good place to uh, wrap things up. I think okay. we covered a lot of ground, unless there's something it. else you want to address. No, that's good. Well, thank you so much for uh, uh, coming on the show and talking about this stuff. It's It's been no, great. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure. Well, that's it for our uh, interview with Dr. Tymon. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope that the uh, diminished audio uh, wasn't a distraction. Uh, we didn't really have good mics on either side. You, so, you saw, if you were watching the video version, how I slid my mic out of the way once I realized that it wasn't actually recording anything. My laptop uh, microphone was. But I follow in the tradition of uh, our original uh, co-host, Ryan Masterson, uh, to do the best audio quality I possibly can. So in the future, we'll try to work around that. Um, and, and get that right. Um, what we have coming up, uh, in a week, it is, uh, the fifth channeling intensive of the other selves working group. And in this intensive, we're trying to get, uh, the entire working group participating either remotely or, uh, in person. And we're going to have, uh, Nithin, me, Steve, and another working group member who's going to be uh, holding energy for us uh, as a battery. Um, so I'm really excited about this. If you want to participate in a small way in this intensive, we are doing our very level best to set intentions of uh, creating a powerful calling uh, for the creator's love and light during uh, the intensive that's going November 3rd through 8th of 2023 uh join us in praying and saying and doing meditations to set this intention and help us uh create the best opportunity for this ongoing conversation with the confederation um your support uh even if it's from afar is very uh desired and appreciated um so that's what's going on uh and i'm just getting ready for that so I'm going to get back to that. We're going to try and record some stuff for the podcast while we are uh, in country. And uh, so look forward to that. Any questions you have, uh, let me know. Uh, if you want uh, 
dispatches from uh, the intensive, uh, go to the Other Selves Working Group website. That's otherselvesworking.group. Uh, on there, there is a form to sign up for our Substack. This is our official newsletter where we broadcast to those few parties who are interested in what we do, uh, news updates and details like that. So I'm going to be trying to share details of how the intensive is going on there uh, for all subscribers. So if you want to follow along, that's the place to go. Uh, so I appreciate any energy, intention, calling, love, light, uh, whatever you can send our way. Uh, so that we can do uh, the best for the creator. It's greatly appreciated. In the meantime, fellow other selves, stay in the love and light.